Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We are, uh, over the course of uh, these uh, next several weeks, uh, looking at, we're preaching a sermon series on our mission and values as a church. Remember, we've said that uh, like so many churches uh, over the past year uh, to year and a half, uh, really it's been easy for churches all over the world to have our mission really reduced down through COVID to continue to exist, right? Uh, keep the doors open and continue uh, to, uh, to meet as a church. But uh, we, uh, by God's grace, are starting to look out beyond that and wanting to say, well, what is it that we exist to do as a church, right? Uh, getting up every morning to not die is not enough reason to live, right? Getting up every morning and going to church just to keep the lights on is not a compelling mission and vision. So we want to look at why do we exist as a church? What are we asking God to do in us and through us? And so our mission statement uh, we talked about last week, our mission is to see and display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. To see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. And last week we looked at the importance of seeing Jesus, that we believe that every one of us have the same deepest need, that we show up every single Sunday from the kids in the nursery to the sinner behind the pulpit with the same deepest need to see Jesus, to see his grace and his goodness and his mercy towards us. And over these next three weeks, we're going to look at what it means uh, to display Jesus to the world, to display his truth in a world that has largely moved on from the idea that the truth is knowable, to display his beauty in a world uh, that so often believes that religion of all sorts is ugly and not beautiful, and to display his goodness in a warped world. And so today we're going to look at displaying the truth of Jesus, right? We have a Savior who uh, tells us that he is himself the way, the truth, and the life, right? That Jesus not only teaches truth, but he is truth. And so in a world that's grown cynical about truth, how do we display and proclaim the one who we've met, who we believe is truth, uh, does sum up all truth within himself? And so uh, this morning, our scripture reading is going to be Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, every year, uh, the Webster's Dictionary people uh, assign a word to be the word of the year, right? Normally, it's uh, some word that's, most, that's recently in that year kind of come up to the public consciousness, something that wasn't uh, in our lexicon prior to the year. And in 2016, the Webster Dictionary word of the year was post-truth, post-truth. Here's how uh, Mr. Webster defines post-truth. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. It's been said, uh, I certainly began talking about it in 16, but it's been said, you know, kind of ever since that we've moved as a culture to a post-truth culture, a culture where it matters less and less and there's less and less agreement on reality, right? Agreed upon facts and truth. Oprah, uh, perhaps the patron saint of a post-truth society, said this in 2017 in a, uh, in a speech at the Golden Globes Awards that was quite celebrated. Uh, it was her uh, speaking in response to the Me Too movement, uh, which was uh, kind of front and center in that era. She says, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we all have. That speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that we all have. And while certainly in the wake of uh, the Me Too movement and all of the reports of abuse that came out of it, we should say that abuse victims speaking the truth is of crucial importance, right? People who've been uh, not had a voice, having a voice is vital and it's important. But of course, what matters isn't that uh, victims speak their truth or your truth, but that we speak the truth, right? Or else we're just stuck in a place of your truth versus my truth, the truth of the victim versus the truth of the abuser, right? What matters most is, is, is in a post-truth world that we maintain a belief that it's the truth that matters, right? And that we can attain to something called truth, that we can know truth. We live in a world in which our sources of information are incredibly fragmented, where if I've heard one thing, uh, maybe more than any other from, from our members over the last uh, year plus, it's been, it's hard to know what to believe, right? It's hard to know who to believe. I don't, I'm about to sound very old, but I don't like to think of myself as an old man. I'm 40 now though, so maybe, I, maybe I'm old. Uh, when I was growing up, we had three news channels. Right, that sounds like an old man thing to say. Um, but we had ABC, CBS, and NBC. Right? You could pick your flavor. You could pick which, you know, which host you like the best or whichever. We had three sources. I, I think we now currently have infinity news sources. Right? Between uh, the proliferation of television news to internet news to guys with a YouTube channel. Right? That there are endless streams of information and news that are difficult for us to sort out. When I was asked in school to work on a uh, research project, I had one major source, the Encyclopedia Britannica, 
right? I would go to the library, or if you had one in your house, you would go to it, right? You would look it up and, and find it. If my dad pretended to know something he didn't really know, I, could go to the, I had to go to the library to get an encyclopedia yeah. to argue with him. My kids can Google it. They can go on Wikipedia and find out instantly, right? Wikipedia has replaced the encyclopedia, and as Michael Scott from The Office reminds us, we know it's true because anyone can edit it, right? So Wikipedia. But it's hard to know what to believe. It's hard to know what is true. And uh, this is of vital importance for a Christian church, for a church whose mission is rooted in, in many ways, our foundation and what we believe to be true, whose mission is about the proclamation of truth. It's about, at a certain irreducible level, our mission is about persuading people to believe that something is true, persuading people perhaps to change their beliefs, to believe that something they'd always believed was true is not true, and something they'd always believed was not true is true. And so how do we present something that's true in a world that struggles to know what's true or to believe what's true, in a world where, if we're honest, we struggle at times to know what's true or to believe in the truth of something as wild as the resurrection of a man from the dead. Our passage today from Matthew 28 is really one of the central passages in the Christian scriptures and in our tradition about the proclamation ministry of the church. It's sometimes called the Great Commission. It's Jesus's, after his resurrection, his commission to his disciples to go and to announce his truth, to make more disciples of his truth. And so we're going to look at three things from this passage, uh, knowing the truth, responding to the truth, and proclaiming the truth. First, knowing the truth. How can we know for certain? Right? How can we know uh, what we believe is true? In philosophy, uh, we call this question epistemology. Epistemology is the question of how do we know what we know? How do we know what we claim to believe? How, in a world of competing voices, do we establish truth? You know, one of the uh, working assumptions through most of modern history has been that there's two types of truth. That there's, uh, there's facts, those things that are established by science and history and research, and then there's beliefs and opinions, right? And those two things are very, very different. There's kind of the lower story, the stuff that you can test and prove and know, science, facts. And then there's the things that you can't know, intuitions, beliefs, faith, opinion. And the assumption for most of my life, the assumption through most of modernity, has been that increasingly what's going to matter is the rational fact, right? That we are going to think our way into faith becoming obsolete, right? That eventually the scientific method and research and knowledge is going to make faith push to the margins of our world. That was, uh, you know, if you, took, uh, if you took science classes in university or college or even high school, this is probably the, some of what you picked up was, you know what? Yeah, we used to think, previous people thought that the world was created in seven days, that it had a creator, that there were origins, but now we know. But now we know how it all came about really. 
And the assumption has been that over time, the, well, what we really know was going to crowd out what superstitious people claim to believe, the opinions that we have. And yet actually what's happened is that opinion and belief have come to almost overwhelm the world of fact, science, and opinion, and, 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 and lower story knowledge, right? So that now we're no longer even, uh, the, the world of what we believe and our opinions dictates the facts that we believe, dictates the science that we listen to and read and understand, right? That we're pushing down our, our fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the world and overwhelming the world of evidence and fact and research to the point that now we say, no, no, you've got your truth, I've got my truth. You've got your facts, I've got alternative facts. And so we're left with pure subjectivity, what I believe versus what my neighbor believes. One prominent example of this, uh, it's a parable that's been told over and over again to kind of argue for the, the, the truth of pluralism, right? That all of the religions in the world are basically like blind men groping at an elephant, right? You may have heard this parable. I, for one, would not like to be a blind man blindly groping at an elephant. But here goes the story, right? That all of the religions of the world are people who are blind and they're feeling an elephant. And one feels the trunk and says, oh, well, to me, it's long and kind of like a snake. That's what it is. And another's at the leg and he feels it and he says, oh, this is, a, this is hard and round and thick. It's, this is a tree. I know what it is. And another one's at the tail and goes, oh, no, no, this, is, this one's hairy. I, you know, so everybody has their own perspective. Everybody has their own limited knowledge. And nobody knows the whole. And so it's arrogant for any of the world religions, for any claim at truth to say that they know the whole truth when at best we're all just groping trying to figure it out. But that entire parable presumes that there's one person who sees it all just right, right? That there's one person looking out with an all-seeing eye at all of the religions of the world and saying, well, none of y'all have it right. And it's the perspective of a 20th century Western skeptic, right? That says, oh, I see what the Hindus believe and the Muslims believe and the Christians believe and none of them have it right, only I see reality for what it is. And so the question of truth is ultimately one of authority, right? Who sees, who knows, who has a perspective on the entire thing? And into that world, Jesus speaks when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right, remember, this is the word of Jesus after his resurrection and immediately before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And into that world, he says, look, I am the resurrected one. I'm not just another teacher among many teachers. I'm, just, I'm not just another religious founder among the founders of many different religions. I am the one with authority. I'm the one who's come back triumphant over the grave. I have the power to tell you what's true and what's false, what's real and what's pretend, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, right? And so faith begins with the posture of trusting Jesus. It begins, remember, Christianity isn't fundamentally a claim about competing ideas, right? It's not just mostly about different teachings. It's about something that we believe happened in history, 
the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? Something that was attested by eyewitnesses, something that's, that uh, launched the movement of those first disciples uh, to the point of spreading the faith even up to their own death. That our faith rests in something we believe to be true in history. And if it's true, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then it's not just true for me, right? It's not just true for us, it's true for all. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary theologian of the last century, described Christianity as public truth. He says this, when the church affirms the gospel as public truth, it is challenging the whole of society to wake up out of the nightmare of subjectivism and relativism, to escape from the captivity of the self turned in on itself, and to accept the calling which is addressed to every human being to seek, acknowledge, and proclaim the truth. He goes on to say that in the modern world, Christians are taught to be bilingual, that we use one language six days a week. Like for six days a week, we've learned to talk and to act in a way that makes no reference to God, no reference to the gospel, no reference to the resurrection. And then for a couple of hours on Sunday, we take a different language. We start using the language of Christ and resurrection and sin and repentance and faith. And then afterwards, we switch languages again and go back to adopting a language that assumes that God is absent. But Newbigin goes on, he says, but, but if we are true to the language of the church in the language of the Bible, we know that this is not good enough. The incarnate word, that's Jesus, is Lord of all, not just the church. There are not two worlds, one sacred and one secular. There are different ways of understanding the one world, and a choice has to be made about which is the right way, the way that corresponds to reality, to the reality beyond all of the show which the ruler of this world can put on. So to follow Jesus, to hear his voice, is to follow the one who is, who claims to be, and who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so how do we respond to that truth? Well, the only response to the truth of Jesus is what's called here uh, the response of discipleship, right? He says, go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations. It means that when any of us meet Jesus, we meet him in the same exact way that Peter met him, that Matthew met him, that James and John and Paul met him. That the only way we meet Jesus, and every time we meet Jesus, is to hear his call that says to each of us, follow me. Right? Follow me. Arrange your life, arrange all of your life around following me. The truth of Jesus calls us to obedience. Right, it calls us beyond mere belief, right? To, to, to trust in Jesus, to place our faith in Jesus isn't just about changing our minds, right? It's not just about adopting certain opinions that we didn't have before. It's about obedience, teaching them not to believe everything I've said, but teaching them to obey all of my commandments, right? That it's to, to take our life, our entire life, and to relearn how to live from Jesus. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice of Jesus, someone who is learning from Jesus how to live, someone who's learning from Jesus actively 
how to order our entire lives. To meet Jesus is to meet the truth that requires us to reorient every single bit of our life. You know, one of the marks of maturity as a human being is that when you run into reality, you change your life to meet the demands of reality. You don't demand that reality changes itself to meet your demands, right? Foolishness is a child on a roof with a sheet saying, if I, if, you know, if I jump off this roof, I might fly, right? Wisdom, maturity is saying, you know what? I learned about Mr. Newton and his apple, right? I learned about gravity, and I know that reality is not going to shift to meet my reality. I have to conform my life to meet reality. Think about sitting in the doctor's office. This is true of bad news or good news, right? You're in the doctor's office, and the doctor tells you, I've got bad news. It's cancer. Foolishness says, I don't believe you. I'm going to go about my day, right? I'm going to go about my life. I'm going to keep smoking two packs a day of cigarettes. I'm going to, I'm going to ignore this. I'm not going to get treatment. If I ignore it, it'll go away. Wisdom says, I'm going to receive this bad news no matter how unpleasant it is, and I'm going to rearrange my life around it. I'm going to listen to the doctor. I'm going to go get treatment. I'm going to get support around me. And the claim of Christian discipleship is that if bad news can reorient your entire life, then good news can also re reorient your entire life, right? The good news that you are forgiven and set free by Jesus, that you are loved to the depth of your being, that he's died for you, that his kingdom's coming, is good news so good that the wise response is to say, oh, I'm going to reorient my entire life around this good news. I'm going to follow this one wherever he leads. I'm going to do whatever he asks. Dallas Willard put it this way. He says, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in her life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. A disciple is one who's constantly revising their entire life to follow through on that moment when Jesus said to follow me. And we said, okay. It's to look at your relationships. It's to look at your finances. It's to look at your living situation. It's to look at your ethics. It's to look at every bit of your life and to constantly hold it loosely and open to correction and revision uh, by the Jesus who commands us. So we respond to Jesus by becoming his disciples. And we respond to Jesus by proclaiming his truth. So we looked at how we know the truth, how we respond to the truth, and now how we proclaim the truth. Right? The reality of, of meeting Jesus, of meeting the one who is true, calls us not just to a private faith, it's not just to rearrange our lives, but what does Jesus call his disciples to? To go and to make disciples. Right? Not to make disciples of themselves, Right, Not to say, come and be like me, but to make other disciples of Jesus. To tell other people, look, you should become a follower of this one that I follow. Paul could even say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Right? Come along with us and, and follow after the one who's taught us how to find life. And so for us to, as a church, say that part of our mission is to display the truth of Jesus. It means that we want to live it 
right? We want to hold our lives continually to his teaching. And we want to proclaim it to make sure that other people come to know it. A couple of observations here about the way that we make disciples, the way that we persuade others to follow Jesus. First is notice that Jesus says to go and make disciples. You know, this is a shift throughout most of the Old Testament. The assumption was always that the nations of the world should become worshipers of Israel's God. But the assumption was that if the, the, the nations would come to Israel, Right? There's, these vi- there's a vision in Isaiah, there's one in Micah of the nations streaming into the temple to worship God. But now Jesus says that the way that the nations are going to come to worship the true God is not by all of them coming to Israel, but it's by you going to all nations. Right? It's by you, uh, whether it's taking a, a flight around the world or a walk across the street, it's about you not just staying and waiting for your neighbors or the nations to come to you, but going, right? Being willing to, like Jesus, be sent into the world with a message of hope and truth. And so it's a call for us to go, a call for us to make disciples, for us to urge other people to come and to become followers of Jesus, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, am, I think this is maybe the part of the Great Commission that if you've heard this taught on, often gets skipped over. Right, This is a call, the call to baptize people into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is the moment in the Great Commission when we learn that this is a community business, Right, that this is not an individual uh, calling, but it's a calling on a church. Right, Nobody's ba- You're not baptized into a one-to-one relationship. You're not even baptized into a personal friendship. You're baptized into the church. You're baptized into a community, the community of Father, Son, and Spirit, and you're baptized into a fellowship of people, right? I, I remember every t- you, when I, I used to get so much anxiety whenever anyone would talk about evangelism, right? It was talked out in such a way that it's like, you know what? You know who the evangelists are? It's Billy Graham who can pack out a stadium, right? Um, or it's the guy who's just always got a tract in his pocket that's willing to leave it behind, or somebody who's willing to, you know, walk out on the beach and just accost total strangers and ask them if they know where they're going if they die. And all of this felt intimidating, weird, and I could never imagine myself doing it. But the vision here of evangelism as a community effort means that no one person is entirely responsible for the salvation of your neighbors, right? That, that you have a part to play in a team sport of the Great Commission. That it may be that God's plan for your neighbor, who you've been praying with and praying for for years, is for you to love them, for you to walk across the street and to build a friendship with them. Maybe at a moment where they're searching or they're hurting, to extend an invitation to come to church, Maybe then they hear the gospel preached, right? That, that, you know, you, you might feel completely ill-equipped Ill- to preach the gospel, right? Now, it's our hope that everybody is growing in their ability to say what they believe and why. But you could bring them here and they'll hear the good news preached. They'll not only hear it preached, but maybe they'll meet a few of your friends, right? And, and maybe they'll start to get involved in Christian community and they'll start to say, hey, you know what? My whole life I've thought Christians were weird, and now that I'm at this church, I do, yeah, they're, they're weird. 
right? But these people have something that I need, right? These are... These are weird people, but they're sinners and they're broken and they found life. And then maybe they'll, they'll bring their kids and their kids will be loved and cared for by volunteers in the nursery. And that'll move them to say, hey, my, these people not only care about me, they care about my kids. And so as a community, we can become the type of people who start to invite people into the truth together. And then who baptize people into a relationship with the living God teaching them to obey as we're learning to obey, learning to rearrange our lives around Jesus, the one who calls us and who tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, the discipleship to Jesus, living under his truth is a life-giving call where we learn how truly to live. Vaclav Havel was a, uh, a leader in the Czech, uh, among the Czechoslovakian people, uh, when they were living, when the Czechs were under Soviet rule. So it was, a, it was one of those kind of Soviet puppet states. Havel was a Christian. Uh, he was a playwright. He was an author. He became prime minister. He was a, one of these remarkable Renaissance men. When he describes what it took for Czechoslovakia to become free uh, of the dictatorship uh, that held sway there, what became known as the Velvet Revolution, right, as is, is, uh, is the other nations of the Eastern Bloc were going through violent revolutions, uh, the Czechs went through what they called a Velvet Revolution. That sounds nice. That sounds more fun. He said what it took to overflow, overthrow the dictatorship was for people to no longer be willing to live within a lie, but for people to begin to live within the truth. He said it took a small group at first. It was a small group of dissident Christians who were no longer willing to live, as he said, within a lie, but instead began to live within the truth, who began to tell the truth, to say that the emperor had no clothes when it came to the dictator, who, began, who were willing to, to live out uh, the truth of the Christian vision together. And over time, a small group of people living within the truth toppled a dictatorship, toppled a government. The church, for our witness to be credible, has to be a people who live within the truth, have to be a people who tell the truth about ourselves, have to be a people who tell the truth about the world. Our mission, uh, you know, we ask people to believe something that's pretty hard to believe, right? That God became flesh, lived with us, then died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. That to get anyone to believe that, one takes a miracle, but it also takes developing some credibility, right? It takes being a people who people trust as being people who live within the truth. That's why it's such a big deal that the church tells the truth, that we tell the truth about ourselves, that when, when abuse of power, when abuse happens within our churches, that we tell the truth about it. Because we want to be taken seriously that when we talk about Jesus that we're viewed as, as speaking the truth. Part of what it means to live under Jesus is to tell the truth. Our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Catechism, has a brilliant, I think, section on what it means to tell the truth. Uh, this is uh, on the teaching of what it means to tell the truth under the Ninth Commandment, right? That we not bear false witness. And here's the way the Catechism describes what that means for us, what, what it means to live inside the truth. 
The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man in the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing from the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering over their infirmities, freely acknowledging their gifts and graces, defending their innocence, a readiness to receive and to believe a good report, and an unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them. That's saying, hey, you're not going to be a people that gives in to gossip or to slander. You're not going to be one of those people that can't wait to hear something bad about your neighbor, but you're going to be somebody who speaks the truth and speaks goodness and defends your neighbor's reputation. Keeping of lawful promises. When you say you're going to do something, you do it. Studying and practicing whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. To live within the truth. Lord Jesus, we come to you and ask you to help us to live within your truth to live within the truth of the one who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we admit uh, that we are oftentimes half-hearted disciples, that though we uh, make a show of wanting to order our lives around your truth, we order our lives around so many lesser things, the pursuit of our dreams and our visions, the uh, false reports and gossip and conspiracy that we hear. Lord, help us to orient our entire lives around the truth of who you are, the truth of the word that you speak. Lord Jesus, help us to be your disciples and help us to make disciples. Help us to proclaim a true and honest word in a world that doubts whether real truth and real honesty are even possible. Lord Jesus, help us to be and to live as a people of truth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.